At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 391st episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic, whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food. And I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. Today on our podcast, we have someone who's building urban food resiliency with more than just vegetables. We're talking with Catherine Bukowski about community food forests. Catherine is a researcher, author, educator, and consultant. She's worked internationally and domestically in sustainable land use and natural resource management, agroforestry, permaculture, and project planning to strengthen communities. She pursued her passion for tropical ecosystems by earning a Master of Science in Natural Resource Management. Then she returned to school and earned a PhD in Human Dimensions of Forest Resources and Environmental Conservation at Virginia Tech. At Tech, she was introduced to the topic of community food forests, which ultimately became her dissertation research and focus of her new book, The Community Food Forest Handbook, How to Plan, Organize, and Nurture Edible Gathering Places, published by our friends at Chelsea Green. Welcome to the show today, Kathy. Are you ready to rock food forests? Yes, let's do this. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure. I think that it started for me at a very, very young age, actually. For as long as I can remember, I was really fascinated with 
jungles and rainforests. That might be because I grew up when there was movies coming out like Fern Gully and The Medicine Man and all these campaigns to save the rainforest, but I was just enthralled with them. And in high school, I had an opportunity to partake in Program for Baileys, which is a two-week program that brings students down and they spend a week in northwestern Baileys in a little compound in the middle of the forest and then the week on an island and learn about both ecosystems. Wow. So that solidified my like love for these vibrant forest ecosystems. And I went on to study that in college and then again in grad school, went to work internationally. But it was during grad school working with forest conservation, trying to understand how forest ecosystem functions return to land that had been used for pasture and cattle that I was working every day in the forest with a lot of Costa Ricans helping me collect data. Through the conversations I was having and what I saw happening in the community was always this tension between agriculture, the forest ecosystems, and the conservation efforts, as well as expats moving in to the area and taking over some of the land, also cutting down the forest and ultimately employing some of the Costa Ricans to become gardeners rather than continue with the agricultural culture they had. So all of that really had a huge impact on me and moved me to work towards agroforestry as the field I really wanted to be working in. So you mentioned agroforestry. Can you kind of break that apart for us and tell us what it is? Definitely. When I first learned about it, it was not through any formal definition. It was, again, while I was in Costa Rica and being able to see these different farming systems. And so I'm going to talk about it from that angle, how I first was introduced to it. It was integrating some of these trees for all types of purposes, whether it was timber, fence posts, in order to mark the boundaries of a property. Yet at the same time, those fence posts were growing into trees that the branches could be cut down and used as cattle forage. So that's how I was introduced to it. And it fits really well with the definition that's a little bit more formal that we use here in the U.S. And that's really intentionally integrating trees into farming agriculture with either crops or domestic animals. That's a very simplistic definition of it. Yeah. And really working trees into the landscape so it becomes a whole ecosystem, not clear cutting and adding trees. Sometimes a field has been clear cut. And bringing agroforestry into it will then reintroduce specific tree species for specific means into that system, whether that be forage for some of the cattle or in other countries, it might be goats, pigs, chickens. It could be bringing in trees that you want to have producing nitrogen and green fertilizer for the soil. And in other instances, there's types of agroforestry where you are bringing in crops maybe into a manipulated forest system that already exists. And that would be forest farming is one example of that, growing mushrooms under the forest canopy. You might go in and manipulate the amount of shade levels, or there could be herbs growing under. That's still considered agroforestry because it is a mixture of the forest and agricultural crops. There's different ways to understand it. And I have to imagine that given we're talking about permaculture and natural systems, we're thinking at a level of a whole systems thought rather than a specific single crop. Is that the case? Yes, this is very based in systems thinking. So your book, The Community Food Forest Handbook, How to Plan, Organize, and Nurture Edible Gathering Places, that's cool. It's almost third space-like. Are you familiar with that term, third space? No. 
They're not 100% public, but they're not our home. They're kind of a secondary place that we go to hang out and commune with people. And in this case, you could commune with nature. Oh, yes, definitely. You can commune with nature and reconnect to other people in your community, too. There you go. So who's this book for? We try to address a wide audience, but really what inspired me to want to write it and I think that my co-author was coming from this angle as well. We both brought sort of different elements to it. Is after doing the research, I realized that most community food forests that I talked with and interviewed maybe knew about one or two others in the nation, but didn't have any idea to the extent of how many there were developing. And my goal was to get this information out there so that people could connect who are working on these type of projects or who are inspired and want to work on them. So some of the information is directed towards that type of audience. If you would like to do one in your community, if you're already working on one, how could you potentially improve certain aspects of it? And John sort of brought in an element of also wanting to talk about different professions that we could bring in, because that was one of the other things we found is that people didn't know who to turn to when they first started developing these projects in their communities. So that was other topic we really wanted to cover and then provide the information for those professionals to know about these projects and be able to work with those community members. So let's imagine that our listeners don't have any idea what a community food forest might look like. I know that you have some pictured in your mind. I want you to go stand out in front of one of them and tell us what we're looking at. Well, that's great. That's also how the book starts out. I won't just reiterate that, but I will base it on, I have this image burned into my head of one of my favorite community food forests that I went to actually. And looking from the outside in, I'm standing on a really busy city street and I had just been driving around trying to find this site. And then suddenly I'm standing in front of it and it's just this lot exploding with vegetation and life. And so I step from this super busy street through the threshold of a semi-open fence and suddenly I'm into this world where there is buzzing insects, there's all these different color greens jumping out at me and I could actually lose myself in that atmosphere for a few moments so much that I forgot about this loud, obnoxious street behind me. You know, and then suddenly that kind of came back into realizing where this space is and kind of locating it. And then it opened up curiosity to be like, okay, this is crazy. This plot full of all of this stuff is sandwiched in between this old vacant building and this old car lot. So what's here? And you start exploring down a path. And as I'm walking down this little mulch pathway, I'm getting like sense of mint and thyme and these different things that I'm sort of stepping on a little bit because they're close to the pathway and they're just like releasing these smells. So it's just very sensory. And now that was more of a mature food forest. I don't want people to think that's what they're going to immediately enter when they're just starting a food forest. But five years down the road, which was the age of that particular food forest, that's what was happening. And there was peaches, pears, plums. I happened to go at the perfect time of year that all of this was like popping and ready. So that's the ultimate goal. And how many of them are out there in our world? On my website, I'm constantly looking in the news for new articles and when food forests are being talked about and people write into me. So there's somewhere right now around 80 that I've mapped out. 80 around the country or around the world? 80 around the U.S. There's even more for sure around the world because they're happening New Zealand, Australia, Europe. There's a lot in Canada as well. And I need to start mapping all those. 
So if one wanted to do something like this in their neighborhood, it takes some planning. How does one get started? The pattern that I saw the most was people get the idea, whether it's from a news article, a book they read, and they get excited about it. Maybe they're driving around their community. They see a space that's underutilized. There was a lot of times when people wanted to get involved in a community garden, but the wait list was really long. So that frustrated them. And then they saw a new space and thought, hmm, maybe there's a better way to do this where people don't have to wait on a wait list. So I think the idea starts with somebody wanting to either grow food or be inspired. And of course, one of the first things they do is either talk to their friends or the people that they know might be interested in this in the community, which sometimes are the same, sometimes aren't. And get a little group of people once they have that validation that this is potentially a good idea for the community, then they start thinking about, okay, well then who do we need to talk to to get such and such a space, you know, such and such a lot, or where are some spaces that we might be able to do this? And that's where maybe some of the first steps are taken towards talking to some of the authorities or agencies owning some of that land in the community are, or if it's a vacant lot, talking to neighbors around that area to see if this is something that could be supported and welcomed into that space. After some of those first steps, then it's reaching out to a larger community to see if there's going to be a larger interest in people participating in the space. And then at that point, it sometimes goes into having what's known as a charrette. And that is a little community planning process where our ideas are talked about, introduced to the community. It's typically a public meeting that people are invited to. And ideas are shared about this idea of a community food forest. What's it going to look like? What species is it going to include? How are we going to use that space? Do we need to talk to a landscape architect? Is it public works property? Is it a vacant land? Who owns it? Could we potentially get a lease for it? So all of this sort of comes out. And then a design is typically made of what the space might look like. And then another public meeting is held to get feedback on that design. And so the charrette process is this series of multiple meetings to gather community input, which is super crucial, and then getting some feedback on how that input is incorporated into a design. Those are some of the first steps. Really, this is a public process. Bring your community together and work collaboratively to make something like this happen. Yes, very much so. I think the solution for a lot of our challenges moving forward is work collaboratively. The other thing is things like this happen because somebody says so. Somebody takes it on and says, this is going to happen because I said so. Have you seen that? Not really. It's a lot to take on as one individual. Uh Uh-huh. So very often it cannot be that sort of just top-down approach. Like you mentioned, it really has to be collaborative. And there typically is a core group of people that really want to like push it forward. That's really what I'm talking about is that it takes one or two people that says, you know what, we're going to make this happen. Let's bring the community together. Yeah, definitely. There's this core group that always exists. They are essential. They are the heart of the project for sure. And we do talk about that in the book and sort of these different zones of social systems that you have to build to get a project, one, off the ground, but then two, to sustain it. So yes, there is that core group that sort of is the heartbeat and sees it through. But really, the heart, of course, pumps out blood to the rest of the body and the other limbs to have things work. And you can sort of think about this in that same way, that core group really really helps get the rest of the body to work. Yeah. So you've gone out and visited a lot of these community food forests, I am sure. And I would bet 
that you run across something magical that happened out there at one of them. Can you tell us about it? So the first summer when I was just really getting to know this topic and understand what sites looked like and what their purpose was, I will say in an undisclosed location, I went to a food forest and I parked my car in the alley behind it. And a lot of times these food forests are placed in areas where there might be high crime or poverty as a way of trying to bring community together and strengthen a community and provide resources. So this one was particularly in a higher crime, sort of forgotten part of town. Mm -hmm. And I was in the middle of the food forest and suddenly I heard my car door open and close. Oops. Suddenly that heartbeat sort of starts going and I think to myself, oh no, like my purse is in there and all this other stuff. Just that moment of sort of fear. And I stepped forward towards the car and made myself visible and saw three young girls starting to walk away from the vehicle. And I yelled out to them and said, hi, how may I help you? And they were sort of like caught off guard. Uh-huh. The first question out of one of the girls was, what is that on the tree behind you? Oh. And I turned around and it was a pear tree. And suddenly in that moment, the whole situation just sort of transformed. Wow. Because I turned around and I said, oh, those are pears and they happen to be ripe. Do you want to come in and pick one? And one of the girls ran forward, clearly like sort of startled by the whole thing. And the curious one said, okay, and kind of came in. Uh-huh. And we ended up talking and she picked some of the pears and she was this like trepidation. I said, go ahead, bite into one. They're, they're really ripe right now. And she bit into one and was like, wow, can I take some of these home? And that right there, I was just like, okay, that's why these places exist. Wow, cool. So what is the most important yield that we get from projects like this? introducing people to food again, what it looks like when it's growing, particularly fruit and these perennial different herbs and berries that people are so used to just going into the grocery store and getting in little plastic containers sometimes. So one, it's showing people what the actual plant looks like, what it takes to grow this. It's education and it's healing. Honestly, it's those two things reconnecting is sort of the basis of it, but reconnecting to nature, to people, to the food we put in our bodies, to how that's grown. I've heard from quite a few leaders of food forests, some of their struggles with growing fruit trees. And I'm sure you understand this as well, given your work. Oh, yeah. So understanding and seeing some of those struggles firsthand, I think also really offers education on what are some of the prices we see at the farmer's market? You know, what are some of our local farmers going through? And it just opens up a whole world of education. But also as people are working in these spaces, I think it can be really healing for some people to be doing something positive and creating something in an urban environment where so often, you know, you just go through daily motions and nature becomes this like background landscape. Yeah. There's something I've been hearing a lot about lately called nature deficit disorder. Some days I feel like I'm afflicted with it sitting in front of my computer for too long, but it's really about not getting enough nature. And these community food forests provide a place to the community to reconnect around nature, do they not? Yes, definitely. There is a theory out there called art, attention restoration theory. And these theories talk about spaces where people can go and sort of have attention and we're looking at computer screens all day and once you go outside and you're sitting in this community food forest there's so many different colors and textures and you get brought back into noticing these things around you and your attention's restored and your cognitive abilities are restored and you get it in three dimension yeah 
Wow, cool. So the Community Food Forest Handbook, how to plan, organize, and nurture edible gathering places. Before we started, you had asked me for a favor about this. You want to share about that? Yes, thank you. So the book has just come out in July. So it's newly on the market, but we would really appreciate if people could leave reviews on Amazon or Chelsea Green or my website. Those are places you can get it. But of course, that's how we work these days. Like personal reviews really help other people get interested in the book. So if you've read it and you like the book, please go out and leave a review. I've got a copy here in front of me and I reviewed it. I haven't read it in depth, but I reviewed it and it looks really comprehensive. And this is a good piece of work that's going to contribute greatly to our local food systems, I believe. Thank you. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. Well, when I was in college, I was a double major. Studio art was my second major. And when it came to my final semester, I was supposed to do an art exhibit in order to finish up the degree. And I'm really drawn to like new software programs and apps that come out at that time. Uh It was, I'm totally dating myself, but it was Photoshop. So I was trying to learn Photoshop to make my art exhibit and wow, I just couldn't get a grip on it. And so I ended up realizing, okay, I'm just going to go forward with, you know, environmental work anyway. So that's fine. But that's kind of always plagued me. So trying to adopt this new technology too quickly at the last minute when something was due, one, there's a lesson in that, right? We need to give ourselves time to learn new things. Yep. But then two is I've thought about like, okay, why does this bother me? What do I want this mistake to teach me? And what keeps eating at me? What's really below the surface? And for me, it was just that I had never done a collection of work, which is what an exhibit is. So Mm -hmm. if we think outside the box and get to the root of something, there can be new solutions. For me, I might just hold an art exhibit with friends and family. And then I finally get that experience of the collection. And another more recent one was when I was trying to teach a class. Have you ever heard of Prezi? Oh, yeah. Got super excited about Prezi and tried to teach a class with it. Again, too quick adoption of a new technology and total failure. The class just didn't work out. I wasn't used to Prezi yet. It maybe isn't meant for that long of a period of time presentation. So from that also, again, just reiterating, new technologies can be shiny and exciting. Give yourself time to figure out how to appropriately use them and use the right tool for the right task. Make sure you know how to use them before you jump in and commit completely. Yes. That could flow over to the community food forest process as well. When people are starting to build the community around a food forest, if you move ahead too quickly, that can spell problems, can it not? Definitely. It's also a great place to experiment together, though. So if one person does have something new, some new technology or new idea that they want to adopt, the community food forest really provides a great ground to bring that idea and bounce it off others and get some feedback and then experiment together in a space where one person may not risk like losing their crop or something like that about it, you know. So there's a little space for experiment there, too, that I saw a lot. Well, and we have to do that. I tell people all the time, growing food in cities is one great big grand experiment. You got to jump in and figure it out. Yeah. And when you're sharing that risk with others, you can grow through that with people. Yeah. So what do you consider your biggest success? Well, I feel like I should say the book because that took forever. But I think keeping a large network of friends and people that I can call upon when I need to. I've worked in a lot of different places. My life has been really transient. I still feel like there's people I can call up from any place I lived and talk to them and have conversations. And a lot of that work and those connections have been about agriculture and nature. So I think for me, that's a big success, being able to keep that network going. Yeah, that's huge. Going down the road, 
being able to pull on that community for resources, it makes all the difference in the world for me. So what drives you? I can actually tell you kind of the exact moment when I think I figured out what drove me in life. It was 2002. And I was sitting in the Valley of Fire State Park in Nevada watching a sunset. It really hit me that our reason to be here on Earth, at least for me, is to continuously to aspire to be the best version of ourselves that we can be. And by doing that, we can inspire other people around us to hopefully do the same and to pass on everything we've learned in life into the next generation and keep elevating society by doing that. And so that really drives me. And in the realm of community food force, the work that I do with agroforestry and communities, it's sort of what Joanna Macy calls the work that reconnects. Are you familiar with that? I'm not, but I can kind of imagine from what it sounds like, what it might be. Why don't you share with us? It's looking for ways to grow courage with people and to build resilience and you know look for our ways to help heal the world. So for me, that work is with the environment, really, and trying to reconnect people to nature as a way to heal themselves and their communities and the land. And I feel like with my background, I'm able to step partially into academia and the research realm, but also work right with people and bring some of that information to them that may not otherwise be accessible to them. And that's kind of what drives me to be this person that helps connect the dots. Beautiful. And one of the interesting things that you said early on was that you discovered this at a really young age. You and I have that in common. I can trace my desire to grow healthy food and teach people about it back to the eighth grade where I wrote a paper on how we were overfishing the oceans. And it's been a driver in my life ever since. And it sounds to me like for you, it's the same. Yes, definitely. I hope you have that essay and you can like put it up on the wall as a reminder. (laughs) So if you could recommend one book, okay, I know it's going to be two books for our listeners. What would they be and why? I'm sort of a bookaholic. I'm constantly collecting books and reading through them. And typically I'm reading more than one book at a time. Mm Mm-hmm. So recently, two books that have really hit me and stood out for me are The Spell of the Sensuous by David Abram and Reclaiming the Wild Soul, How Earth's Landscapes Restore Us to Wholeness by Mary Reynolds Thompson. And both of these books talk about, of course, this reconnection to nature, but at a deeper level, why did we ever first see ourselves apart from nature? When did this divide start to happen? And The Spell of the Sensuous, that name is talking about all our different senses and how indigenous cultures and even philosophers have used these different senses to be in touch with our natural world. Also about how language has changed and how it shapes our perception of the world around us. And I think that's super important. I mean, quick example, language-wise, a couple decades ago, we were just getting into the word sustainable. And now that's like transformed into that's not enough. It needs to be regenerative. Right. I mean, that little bit of language and the ideas that surround it have totally shaped perception that has inspired different ways of thinking and projects. So The Spell of Sensuous is really great, I think, for shifting how people see that in language and how they're using it and how that shapes things. And then Reclaiming the Wild Soul, there's a lot of elements that are very connected and it's helping us to understand these different landscapes that are around us, how they affect us and how we have different feelings when we're in certain landscapes. And I just really resonated with that because being drawn to forests when I was younger and for most of my life, it's such a mysterious place. It induces this sense of like, awe and curiosity whenever I enter one and I want to explore. And I think that's another reason community food forests are great for communities Mm -hmm. because they create a space for people to explore and be curious. 
and they're constantly changing. A forest might look like it's this one huge, you drive by every day and it's a forest, but inside it, there's like these constant changes happening. Mm -hmm. And when you grow these perennial crops and you're growing the whole food forest paradigm, you have a mixture of annuals and perennials. You're learning to work with something that's there year after year, but getting in touch with the little changes that are happening. And I think that that whole process is very different than normal gardening and really healing for people in a way. It teaches you to be okay with change. Oh, that's huge. In fact, that's really the only thing that we know for sure in our life besides we're going to die is that things are going to change. Yes. And you have to be flexible sometimes and adapt and keep working with them to get the results you want. Yeah. So that second book was by Mary Reynolds. Mary Reynolds Thompson. Yeah. So she actually wrote another book as well. And we had her on our podcast, episode 341, talking about her book called The Garden Awakening. Oh, yeah. She was an amazing guest. So that's back on episode 341, almost, I was going to say maybe six, seven months ago. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? If you are creating a community food forest or a garden or you're just gardening at home, but really if you're gardening with other people and you're working on these projects, two different things. One, consider all the ways that space can nurture people beyond just food, because one of the ways they contribute to a food system is by getting people to be thinking about how food and how the whole food system feeds people and nourishes people beyond just what they're putting in their mouth. So create certain spaces and try to work it into the design and the educational information for the site to trigger those thoughts in people, get people thinking we need prompts sometimes because in our like day-to-day, we get into little patterns, right? And we might not think about that. So having little prompts, whether it's a little sign in the garden with a question, or if it's a little space for people to like sit and observe, please consider adding those spaces to your growing space. But also don't be afraid to have the deeper conversations. So if sitting in that space means something to you or working with a particular plant triggers stories or a memory of a recipe, share those with other people rather than just asking Mm. them, oh, how's your tomatoes looking today? You know, ask people about that. Be willing to have those conversations and it's going to trigger other people too. And ultimately that's what's going to improve our communities and our food system. So I just really, really want to encourage people to do that. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Kathy. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate being on and having this opportunity. You bet. And I just want to do a shout out to you for a couple of things. I have a master's degree and I've thought about going back and getting a PhD and I know how much work they are. So good on you for doing that, number one. And I would have to say that one of your big successes is this book sitting here right in front of me. I haven't yet written a book, but I have friends that have and I know how much work it takes, especially a book this beautiful. The book is called The Community Food Forest Handbook, How to Plan, Organize, and Nurture Edible Gathering Places. You'll be able to find it on Amazon, I'm sure, and please do a review of it there if you read it. It'll also be on our show notes page today. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? I have a website that is communityfoodforests.com, and I have a contact page on that website where people can type into a form and it'll send it to me. And I will get back to you, but I will in advance apologize that I can be slow. Welcome to our world. So what was that website again? Communityfoodforests.com. Perfect. 
You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash food forest. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Claiming your inner urban farmer is easy. Grow food, share it, and name your farm. Then let the world know you're an urban farmer while supporting our podcast. Pick up your urban farmer bling, hats, and t-shirts at imanurbanfarmer.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.